different sermon this morning, a little different service this morning. We've finally gotten to the point where you can take out your message outline that says Hearing by Grace. As you turn there, uh, let me note, I meant to say this earlier, um, as uh, many of you know, we lost Rick Barron's a little over a year ago, and we have had a hole on the session. And while the guys that we're ordained today will never fill that hole, uh, it is my prayer that uh, moving forward, the session, uh, in some degree, will feel whole again. So, appreciate that. I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to just dive in. Heavenly Father, as always, we come to your word this morning in desperate need of it. We need to be reminded what it means to follow you. We need to be reminded that the Bible isn't about me, but it's about you, and we need to hear you, we need to see you, we need to understand what you're teaching us in these passages. Thank you that your word always points us to our Savior. We need the salvation he offers. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may turn back to you in faith and repentance. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, as I came to preparing this message on hearing by grace for this special of occasion of installing uh, John Thompson as a ruling elder and Tom Gardner as a ruling elder and Kirk Mottman as a deacon, I thought it only appropriate that to some degree uh, my remarks this morning will be directed towards them. The rest of you just get to eavesdrop today. Actually, this sermon hopefully applies to everyone here because the character qualifications of a church leader should be the character qualifications of any follower of Christ. And the type of ministries that church leaders should be involved in are the same types of ministries that any follower of Christ should be involved in. So even if I say, Kirk, you need to do this, please understand that it applies to everyone uh, who claims the name of Christ. It's easy when you come to the subject of leadership in the church to name a lot of great leaders in the past and just try to emulate them. But that doesn't always work. Reminds me of the baseball coach who used to try and inspire his uh, young pitchers by showing them films of great big league pitchers so they could see what it's supposed to look like. And the coach would show these films of great pitchers over and over again, and he would tell his players, now guys, see this pitcher. Watch him throw the ball. This is Louis Tiant, who used to pitch for the Boston Red Sox. He's a great pitcher. Look at this. See how he winds up? See how he spins in order to get momentum on the ball? In fact, just before he delivers the ball, as he winds up, he turns his back on the batter. He actually turns his back on the batter in order to get more spin, more momentum on the ball. See that? See how he turns his back on the batter? Now, guys, don't do that. And then he'd show another film, and he'd say, guys, look at this picture. This is Fernando Valenzuela. He used to pitch for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He was a great pitcher. Watch him throw the ball. Now, just as he is getting ready to deliver the ball at the very top of his windup, as he reaches back as far as he can go, ready to hurl the ball forward, he takes his eyes off the catcher's mitt. He looks heavenward, and he rolls his eyes back in his head. And then he throws the ball. 
See that? See how he looks away from the catcher, away from the plate? Guys, don't do that. And then he'd show another film and say, now guys, look at this picture. This is Dwight Gooden. He used to pitch in New York. He was a great pitcher. He was one of the greatest pitchers of the last 30 years. Watch this picture closely. He is almost perfect in every way. See how he winds up? It's almost perfect. He doesn't turn his back on the batter. He keeps his eye on the plate. He's almost perfect. It is a great pitching delivery. See how he does that? You see how he tries to be perfect? You see that pitch? You see how hard he's trying to be perfect? Now, guys, don't do that. Because trying to be perfect will eat a hole in your soul, as it did Dwight Gooden, who tried to fill that hole with cocaine. And what the pitching coach was trying to do for these young ball players uh, was to remind them there is no perfection in our own abilities and in our own strength. You heard that warning already once. And even a major leaguer who's striving for perfection will be defeated if he doesn't recognize that there's a perfection that is beyond him. And what the Lord is trying to do in the passages we're going to look at today, we're going to look at three passages, is to take us to, uh, particularly in two of them, to virtual major leaguers in the religious leadership of their day. And he's going to try to teach us in these passages that there is a perfection beyond our own abilities. You know, one question that comes up repeatedly uh, in the life of the church, it seems to cycle through at least once a decade. Uh, The staff was just talking about this on Wednesday. And it's simply this, when are we going to see another great revival? And I honestly don't have the answer uh, to that, but I have my doubts that it's happening right now. However, I do know what is necessary for a real revival to come. And it's not everyone out there getting everything right and getting their act together and straightening up. It's real heartfelt, genuine repentance on the part of God's people. And that kind of repentance means really turning away from our sin and really turning back to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's when people see and understand the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus in a striking new way. It's when they stand before God and said, I thought I understood what the gospel was, and I thought I understood grace and and who Jesus was, but I didn't. I really didn't understand. But now before God, they open their heart to the working of the Savior and respond to his grace, which works so powerfully in us, and ask that he can use me and change me and make me what he desires, not merely what I desire. And if that's going to be the attitude of the people of God, then someone must lead it. And repentant leaders are what God calls for in this church today. And so in this passage from Isaiah 6, we have a repentant leader. And in Mark chapter 10, where we do not have a repentant leader. And we're going to learn from this sort of inverse image, this reverse image, to look into the mirror of Scripture and say, what is real repentance And is this what we desire of our leaders? For there's no revival or renewal or spiritual awakening apart from repentance. There's no healthy church apart from repentant leaders. So then if this is true, then the starting place for real leaders is real repentance. Real repentance. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. 
books. And it's there in your outline. If you're not sure where it is in your Bible, you can open to the middle and probably you will be in the Psalms and go to the right. And you'll find Isaiah. If you're on your phone or tablet, just scroll. It's easy. Isaiah 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Real repentance has three parts. It may have more, but it has at least three. And the first part involves looking at God, and the second two parts involve looking at ourselves. And to understand what these parts uh, really are, we have to go back to the Old Testament and to this great prophet Isaiah. And we're going to look at his holiness. That should be the first blank in your outline. Are there blanks in the outline? I sort of did this on the fly. Um, but that should be the first one. Look at his holiness. It's the first understanding of what repentance is by understanding who God is. That he alone is holy. There is none like him. He alone has the perfection that righteousness requires. God is holy, other, pure, and apart. He is holy. About 20, more than 20 years ago, probably 22, 23 years ago, I went to the Georgia Dome. There was a pastor's conference, and there were 50,000 pastors there. And one of the speakers there preached on this passage from Isaiah 6. And as they heard scripture speak of the angels responding in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the speaker had the men chant from one, uh, to, to one another from one side of the stadium to the other side of the stadium. And you heard this word, holy, echo from one stadium wall across to the other stadium wall and then back. They took turns and pretty soon, just like the whole stadium was filled with this chant going back and forth and bouncing off the walls and it was coming at you from every direction. And you begin to get an idea, a small taste of what it would be like to hear the holiness of God proclaimed in heaven. As this echo, holy, 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 was going back and forth, you saw men get up out of their seats and get down on their knees. Some fell on their faces before God saying, this is what the holiness of God requires. It makes me look at my sin." Look at my sin. That's the next blank. Because in the next verse, Isaiah 6, 5, we read, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And like the prophet Isaiah, when we're confronted with the holiness of God, do we get down on our knees and say, Woe to me. I'm a sinner. I am ruined. I am undone. Is that how we react? You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
This is my first understanding. There is none righteous, no, not one, before the holiness of God. That he is good and there is none like him. Not even one, especially not me. Because beyond the recognition of the holiness of God is the recognition of the reality of our sin. And Isaiah saw that immediately. We're going to switch over to Mark 10. And we're going to come to a young man who doesn't see it at all. We're going to come to a young man who says, look at my works. Look at my works. Look at Mark chapter 10 with me for a moment. It's an unusual passage to use for a text on leadership because here we have a leader who doesn't do what we want. Let's see what Jesus teaches about repentance from this passage on the rich young ruler. Mark 10, starting at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now we're at a passage where Jesus in front of the disciples comes face to face with a major league religious leader. And in effect, he tells his disciples, now guys, you see that? You see how that guy is striving for perfection? You see how he thinks he can do it all on his own? That he thinks he's going to be accepted before God because of his own perfection? Now, guys, don't do that. You must repent. Turn away from the sin in your life and turn to Christ. There must be an understanding in you, each of you, before God's people of this need for God that's beyond your doing, beyond your works, There's a gap between God's perfection and your performance that you can't bridge with your own actions. And if you don't know that, you don't really know God. And you certainly cannot lead God's people. After all, what characterized true true repentance in Isaiah's life is clearly missing in the life of this rich young ruler. There's no awe of God's holiness. There's no loathing and hatred of his own sin. Now, the revelation of the reality of sin comes to this young man through a series of, quite frankly, preposterous questions and statements. The passage begins rather simply, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question itself is preposterous because you don't do anything to inherit something. You inherit something as a result of your birth and what somebody else has done which is, of course, a vital spiritual principle. But to the question, Jesus gives an answer that's equally preposterous. I mean, I read this and I think, you know, Jesus should have gone to RTS. He would have known better. I mean, look at this answer. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. I mean, 
It sure sounds like salvation by works to me. Do this, do this, do this. But is it really? Did Jesus really believe that our works would make us right with God? We have to be careful. Look at verse 17 and remember where we started. And as he was setting out on his journey. I mean, we're halfway through the book of Mark and suddenly there's this notation of the beginning of a journey. Jesus is pointing out the works of this young man so he could see how he fell short. He wanted this man to look at himself and to see his own sin and see that his works didn't really add up. And what should the reply be to Jesus, this preposterous answer to basically you need to keep the commandments? If you're really able to see yourself, you'd say, Jesus, that's impossible. I can't, I can't do that perfectly. But what does the young man say? Jesus has just told him that only God is good. But how does the rich young man respond? Jesus tells him, he lists the second table of the law, the, the next uh, group of commandments, uh, five through ten. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc., etc. And he gets this answer, I have. I've kept them all. Since I was a youth, nothing but net. Wait a minute. Jesus has just said that only God is good. And then this guy says, me too. I'm good too. And in saying this, he violates the first commandment. Because he's placing himself on level ground with God. To the Jewish mind, this would have been blasphemy. So to reveal his sin, to make him understand the reality of his sin, to make him see his need, Jesus gets right to the point. There's no lofty theological argument. He simply says, give it up. Give up your money. This man's been living for himself. His great need was one of repentance. And it begins with this confession, not only is God holy, I am not. And my works can't make me holy. Repentance is necessary because real repentance brings real grace. Let's move on in Mark 10. See, this incident happened at the beginning of his journey, but we already know where the journey ends. Look at verses 33 and 34 of Mark chapter 10 and look to the cross. Look to the cross. It says, Jesus is saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Did Jesus think our works would save us? No, he knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to do. He knew why he had to do it. Because of the holiness of God, because of the sinfulness of our sin, because our good works would never be good enough. That's why when the young man says, I'm good enough, Jesus says just a little bit more. Give it all away, come follow me. Because if the young man had followed Jesus, where would that road have led? He would have followed Jesus day after day, mile after mile, miracle after miracle, all the way to the cross. Because without the cross, there is no hope. And without the cross, there is no grace. And if you're going to be one of God's people and you're going to lead God's people, you must understand this gospel, this message. God is holy. You're not. Your best is not good enough. But if you repent of trying to do it all by yourself and turn to Christ, then you have hope. 
because Jesus made it right at the cross. He took your worst and gave you his best, and by grace and grace alone, you're saved. So we see that real repentance brings real grace to real people. Real repentance brings real grace to real people. Now, John and Tom and Kirk, you're all sort of sitting in a line there, so this is easy. We finally got into your part, which is really all our parts, but this morning, especially it's your part. How are you going to bring real grace to real people? Well, for the rest of our time this morning, I'm going to focus on the ministry of the deacons because we just don't do that very often. But again, everything I say is not just for Kirk or for the other deacons, but also for John and Tom and the other elders and for every Christian in the room. Now, traditionally, we say deacons have responsibility for three things, the three M's, maintenance, money, and mercy. It's not entirely right, but it's usable for our purposes. So how do you bring real grace to real people in those areas? How are you, as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how are you going to be good stewards of God's varied grace? Some versions have it. How are you going to administer God's grace in its various forms? Well, first we're going to start with holiness and the holiness inside. You see, Kirk, your job really isn't about maintenance or setup, although we want all of our stuff to be well cared for. It's not really about good stewardship of those things, although we want to show good stewardship. It's about holiness, specifically the holiness of God. If you read through all those really boring parts of Leviticus, God's giving his people instructions for the tabernacle, detailed, specific, painstakingly accurate, boring instructions. What's the point? Why does everything have to be done just so and built just right and kept up so well? Because of the holiness of God. Because when you come to worship the Lord God Almighty, who is holy, 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 you're coming to stand on holy ground. You're coming into a sanctuary, which literally means a holy place. It may look like a middle school auditorium to you. But when God's presence fills this place, it becomes a sanctuary. It's a place where saints, holy ones, come to be sanctified, made holy, by worshiping the sacred, a holy God. A sanctuary for sanctified saints to worship the sacred. A holy place for holy people to be made more holy through the worship of a holy God. Maybe some of you don't know Christ yet in a real and personal way. This is a place where you can come and meet with God and begin your relationship with him. This is a place for honest strugglers. Maybe you have no idea where you stand in your relationship with God. This is a place to search and seek and find out. So Kirk and the other officers, it's not your job, it's your calling to make sure that this is a holy place, honoring to God, suitable for worship, a place that makes us stop and think, I'm coming to meet with God. I'm coming to build a relationship with God. I'm entering holy ground. That's why this, as hard to believe as it may be, 
is a sanctuary. And it's your calling to keep it that way. So Kirk, when we say maintenance or setup, you need to hear holiness. The first part of your call is to the holiness inside. The second part is to set sin aside. See, Kirk, your job isn't really about money either, although we all want the bills to be paid and the books to be accurate. It's not really about good stewardship of our finances, although we all want to show good stewardship and see our money spent wisely for God's work. It's about sin. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, uh, preached on this not too long ago, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The issue here is sin, specifically our sin, my sin, your sin. Because like the rich young ruler, we all know how hard it is to part with our money. So Kirk, when we say it's your job uh, to count the money, but it's your calling to teach us, to exhort us, to encourage us to set it aside to move from sin to holiness, even in this most difficult area, because it reveals our hearts and what we worship uh, so quickly. It's so easy to say all the right things, but then to hold fast to our true love, our own stuff, our own possessions, our own money. God doesn't call us to give it because he needs it. It's all his anyway. He can take it anytime he wants. He calls us to give so we recognize our dependence on him, so we realize how easy it is to put money and wealth in front of God. Giving's a physical act. People like walk up and down the aisles with baskets. You have to do something that says, I'm putting God first. Deuteronomy 16 says, three times a year, all your mail shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. It's your calling to teach us that and to hold us accountable to it. So, Kirk, when we say money, you need to hear because of sin. First part of your call is to holiness inside the second part is to setting sin aside, and the third part is to come beside. See, Kirk, your job isn't really about mercy either, although we all want those who are suffering to be cared for. And it's not really about widows and single moms and the needy, although the Bible says all those people are extremely important. It's about realizing that our good works aren't good enough. After all, we want to be able to say, look at what we're doing. Look at these people we're helping. Look how we gave money to them. Aren't we good? Gee, God, aren't you lucky to have us on your side? And we totally missed the point. And I think God's probably shaking his head, but I'm sure he's heard it before. So your job isn't just to help out. Your calling is to come beside those who are suffering and minister God's grace to them. Because into each and every one of our lives comes times when God makes it perfectly clear that our best isn't worthy enough even to be called good. Isaiah says, we read earlier, that our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Situations and circumstances arise for each of us that make it clear that what we do, how we live, what we say, where we go, who we're with, none of it is good enough. 
And like the rich young ruler, we go away sad. And when those things happen, you need to remember that before Jesus answered the rich young ruler, the Bible says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's what you need to do when our own works fail pitifully and we fall apart and we go away sad. Remember, our best isn't good enough, but God's son is. He made the journey all the way to the end, to the cross. And there at the cross, he revealed that he loves us. He brings grace. He makes it right. And so often he uses men that we call deacons to show that to us. So, Kirk, when we condescendingly say mercy, you need to hear, show us the cross, administer God's grace. Because being a deacon is about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and a cross that bridged the gap between the love of Christ and the grace of God. Kirk, Tom, John, your calling is to take that love and that grace into that gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's what being an officer in the church is all about. Some of you are familiar with the great, probably the greatest American theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Great preacher, led many people to Christ. And one time he was leading a prayer meeting uh, for men who thought that God was leading them into positions of church leadership. And it was for all of New England and 800 men showed up. And they were there. They thought God was calling them to leadership in all the churches scattered throughout New England. And they were there to pray. And just before the meeting started, Edward received a note from a woman waiting outside the hall. She asked in her note, these men pray for her husband who's sitting in the hall among them. And she described him in the note, which Jonathan Edwards read out loud. He is a man who in spiritual pride has grown cold and insensitive and harsh even to those he loved. And she described him so carefully and completely and so well that Jonathan Edwards thought it must be perfectly clear to this man who he is. And so he asked with the man that this note so accurately describes who's under the sin of spiritual pride, please raise your hand so that we can pray for you. And 300 men raised their hands. God used this woman's note to reveal who is really ready for servant leadership. And it was the 300 who raised their hands, not the 500 who kept their hands down. It was those who were ready to repent and be prayed for, not those who thought they were doing it right. Because Kirk and Tom and John, if you're going to lead these people, you have to understand this gospel, this message, God is holy, you're not. Your best isn't good enough. But if you repent of trying to do it all by yourself and turn to Christ, you have hope because Jesus made it right at the cross. He took your worst and gave you his best, and by grace and grace alone, you are saved. So we see that real repentance brings real grace to real people, often through servants that he calls deacons and elders who when we speak to them here by grace, the call to holiness inside, the call to set sin aside, and the call to come beside and administer God's grace to people like me and to people like you, bringing good news to people for whom life has become bad news. For this day forward, and all God's people said,
Amen.